Our uh, text in Daniel 9 that we have been working our way through for a few weeks has long been considered uh, the most important passage in the book of Daniel. Uh, For 2,000 years, Bible students have discussed and debated and researched its meaning. It is the key to prophetic interpretation and the backbone of biblical prophecy. And if you understand, even in an elementary way, what these verses mean, then you will have a good framework for understanding what the Bible says about the future. It opens so many other doors in the understanding of Bible prophecy. Many years ago, a fellow named Alva J. McLean published published a little book on this passage. If that name is not familiar to you, no problem. Uh, But Dr. McLean was a widely known author and theologian in my parents' and grandparents' generation. Uh, He was also the founder and first president of Grace Theological Seminary in northern Indiana. He went on to be with the Lord when I was in grade school, so he's been gone a long time. But many years ago, in fact, back in 1940, he wrote a small book on this prophecy in Daniel 9. And in the first chapter of his book, he mentions three reasons why Daniel 9, 24-27, matters so much. Why is this prophecy of the 77 so important in the grand scheme of Bible prophecy? And Dr. McLean gave three reasons. The first one was this. He said it's a witness to the truth of divine revelation. What he meant was simply this, that these words given by the angel Gabriel in, in 538 B.C., describe in detail certain events that would not happen for hundreds of years. Those events include the death of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of Rome. What is remarkable in these verses is that God laid out a definite chronology regarding the future of Israel and regarding the coming of Christ. As we saw last week, this passage pinpoints the precise moment in history when the Messiah would present himself to the Jewish people, and it does this over 500 years before it happened. Secondly, it is, it is not only a witness to the truth of divine re- revelation, but it is, it is a, a rock that crushes the theories of Bible scoffers. And what he simply meant by that was this, that for a long time liberal scholars have tried to date the book of Daniel very, very late in order to disprove Bible prophecy. It is so precise in what Daniel says about Greece and Rome and Persia and the Lord Jesus Christ coming and all those things that that many Bible scoffers say there's no way he could have known all that and there's no way it could have happened. And of course, if you and I know God and we know uh, God's God's knowledge of, of history and that God is eternal and that God is timeless, no problem to us at all that God tells him exactly what's going to happen. But to many Jewish, or to many scoffers rather of the Bible, Jewish and otherwise, they always try to to date the book of Daniel way up toward the time of Christ. And say, well, he was writing history just trying to make it look like it was prophecy. But, But nobody dates the writing of Daniel all the way up to the time of Christ. And the Jewish historian Josephus said Daniel was translated into Greek in the second century B.C., So it leaves us with a very clear case of predictive prophecy. And it establishes the credibility of everything else in Daniel's book. That's why the critics try so hard to destroy that passage. Then the third reason Dr. McLean gave, because this this passage we're looking at is the key to all other New Testament prophecies. 
Have you ever wondered where we get the concept of a future seven-year tribulation? It's in this passage. Jesus refers to this passage in, in, in Matthew 24. We'll be looking at that in a, few, in a few minutes. The Apostle Paul mentions things from this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. The whole, all the tribulation period events in Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 19 are just an expansion of Daniel 9.27 that we're going to look at today. What, what is presented here in a condensed form is greatly expanded in the New Testament, and this passage is the key that unlocks many other biblical prophecies. One of the major challenges in taking this prophecy in bite-sized form and presenting it to you in an understandable fashion, uh, it's, just, it's just quite, quite a challenge because there's, there's so much there, there's so much detail there. Uh, there's so many things that this passage opens for us. Someone asked a well-known pastor once why he gave so much complicated detail regarding this passage. His reply was, well, because it's there. <laughs> he said, we can't, we can't skip the hard parts just because they're hard. This, this is not the milk of the Word. This passage is the meat of the Word. And remember, if you've been with us for some of these studies, or you've, you've uh, caught up with them online somewhere along the way, remember Daniel was reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And he came across the passage in which God said that the people of Judah would be in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel, realizing that the 70 years are just about over, begins to pour out his heart to the Lord in prayer, confessing sin, pleading for God's mercy, affirming the righteousness of God in all that he does, praising the goodness of God, looking forward to the time when God would bring Judah back to the land in fulfillment of his promises to them. The 70-year chastisement due to the 490 years of neglected Sabbath years, which we talked about a few weeks ago, it was about over. So God sends the angel Gabriel to bring this message to Daniel, and Gabriel expresses to Daniel another 490 year period, divided up into 70 sections of seven years each, that God has planned for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Now we're going to read the prophecy again, we're going to briefly review verses 24 to 26, and we're going to examine verse 27 and all of its interesting prophetic implications. So Daniel 9 verse 24, 70 weeks are determined, and remember the word weeks simply means sevens, a group of sevens, 70 sevens are determined for your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Those six purposes for what this is, this is all about. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, or a total of sixty-nine sevens, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. After the 62 weeks, plus those seven, really the 69 there, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one, one seven. And in the middle of that seven, halfway through, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate 
even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And I'm sure if you haven't been with us through some of these things, you're thinking, what in the world is going on in that passage? We've been trying to explain that and unpack each of those phrases. Remember, if you are with us last week, this prophecy pinpoints the time that the Messiah would present himself to the nation of Israel. And from the time that the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem and its wall, which we saw last week, you can mark as the month Nisan in our March-April, in the year 444 B.C., from that point until the Lord Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem as the Messiah, it was exactly 483 years right to the very month. There are 69 sevens, 483 years. And so basically this prophecy of of, of Gabriel that he gave to Daniel tells the Jewish people exactly when the Messiah was going to come, right to the very month. Some people think they can pinpoint it virtually to the day or the week. But certainly easily pinpointed to the very month from, from 444 B.C., the month Nisan, until 33 A.D., the month Nisan, which is when Jesus was crucified, was exactly 483 years. Then Gabriel says, according to verse 26, after the 69 sevens, two things are going to happen. The Messiah would be executed and Jerusalem would be destroyed along with the temple. Jerusalem would be destroyed by, he says, the people of the prince who is to come. We know that the only event that would qualify is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. If I've lost you already, go back and you can look online in either sermon audio or the church Facebook page. You can hear the last couple sermons from those previous ones, and we explain that in much more detail. But anyway, we come to this point and we think, so far, so good. But then we have some interesting issues in verse 27. Gabriel says, then he will confirm a covenant. We're going to call that a treaty, which is basically what that is. He will confirm a covenant for one seven, one seven years. And that leaves us with several questions. Number one, who is the he? Who is, who is the he who's going to confirm the treaty? Well, it has to mean the people or the, the prince who is to come. The people of the prince who is to come are going to destroy the city and sanctuary in verse 26. Not that he destroyed Jerusalem, but his ancestral people did, and the prince who is to come is still future. The Romans didn't make any treaty with the Jews about anything when they wiped them out in 70 A.D. This treaty marks the beginning of the 70th seven. So apparently there is some sort of a gap between the 69th seven and the 70th seven. The 70th seven years, that last seven years, hasn't started yet. No ruler with his roots in the old Roman Empire has ever made any treaty with the Jews any time in history after the crucifixion of the Messiah. Also, Jerusalem was destroyed 37 years after the crucifixion. So the 70th seven, that last seven years, can't fit like in one unbroken sequence. It's only seven years, not 37 And to go a little further, in verse 27, it says, This prince who is to come, he, he's going to stop sacrifices. Well, there's got to be sacrifices going on in order for him to stop them. And in order for there to be sacrifices, there's got to be a temple, which the Romans destroyed in AD 70. 
In, in addition to all of that, the, the, the six purposes for the 490 years of prophetic schedule that we looked at in verse 24 a few weeks ago, they have not been completely fulfilled yet. So, so, so the only way we can understand this passage is for there to be a gap, some indefinite amount of time between the 69th seven and the 70th seven. Now, the reason I'm even dealing with this and probably confusing the daylights out of you is because there are many, many Bible teachers out there who teach that the 77s are consecutive, that they are completed, they have been symbolically fulfilled, and it's all over for the Jews. You know I don't believe that, and I'm trying to explain to you why. There is an obvious gap between the 69th seven and the 70th seven, and this passage makes no sense at all if there isn't one. And it's not really unusual in Old Testament prophecy for there to be a gap in, in, some, in some verses. And I'll explain why in just a second. Look at Isaiah chapter 61. We'll be back here to Daniel in just a second. Look at Isaiah 61. Isaiah chapter 61, a beautiful messianic passage, a passage about the Messiah. <clears throat> People read it and quote it and, and, uh, and, and make modern day applications for it. We're not, in, not inherently wrong with any, with any of that necessarily. But I want to just show you something. And some of you note takers can write down a couple of references and we won't take the time to read them today due to our, due to our time commitment today. I don't want to preach an hour and a half to you this morning. Actually, I'd love to preach an hour and a half to you, but you'd probably be ready to throw me out if I did. So, anyway, Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. <clears throat> he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And he goes on in verse 3 with some more beautiful things. And so, and that, that's a wonderful, beautiful messianic passage. But if you were to look at it, we won't take the time to read it today, again, just for a time. But sometime, you note-takers, write down Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 22. Right now, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 22. And if you were go to, to read that passage in the Gospels, you would see that Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth, and someone handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And he found this spot that we call chapter 61. And he, he opened the scroll, he found this place, and he read this verse, these verses, but he stopped in the middle of verse 2. He opened the scroll and he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped, and he rolled up the scroll, and he handed it to the attendant, and he told the crowd, Today, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Say, why didn't he read the rest of verse 2? Well, because the day of vengeance of our God comes at the second coming of Christ. Jesus didn't come to bring vengeance on the world at his first coming, but he's going to do that at his second coming. 
And so Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, this verse is about me, but, he said, I'm going to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, but the day of vengeance isn't coming yet. And he didn't even read that verse. He didn't read that phrase in the verse. He stopped right in the middle of the sentence. Because the second part of the sentence speaks of his second coming. So interestingly, here in Isaiah 61, there is a 2,000 year gap right in the middle of verse 2. There are others, other examples of this as well. You could see them uh, all over the place in the Old Testament when you have messianic prophecies. I like to think of it as looking at the mountain front on the east side. I see rows of mountains when I look out on my front porch, presuming I don't get blown off my front porch trying to look at the mountains these days. But I look at the mountains and I, I cannot see the valleys in between them. I know they're there because I've ridden horseback up into the mountains a number of times over the years, but I can't see the valleys from my house. All I can see are the mountain peaks. The Old Testament prophets could see the coming of the Messiah, but they couldn't really see the distinction between the first coming and the second coming. You say, why not? Well, because it wasn't revealed to them. <clears throat> they had no idea. The church age, as we call it, was not revealed until God spoke of this and revealed it through the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul called it a mystery, not, not revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets knew nothing of it. The Old Testament spoke about the salvation of Gentiles, but it did not ever speak about Jews and Gentiles being one in one body, united together in the, in the church, as we call it, the ecclesia, the New Testament word for that, the called out assembly. The Old Testament prophets did not know anything about our age. So when I look at this passage in Daniel chapter 9, and I'm reading along here and I see that the Messiah dies in verse 26, the Romans, the people of the prince who is to come, destroy the city and the sanctuary. They destroy Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple. And then I see in verse 27, the prince of those people, or someone who comes from that, from that kingdom, is going to make a treaty for seven years, and in the middle of the week he's going to stop sacrifices. I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. There is no way that the 70th seven has happened yet. God's six purposes in verse 24 are not fulfilled. In order for the prince who is to come to make a treaty, there has to be a nation of Israel for him to make a treaty with. There has to be sacrifices going on in the nation of Israel. There has to be a temple in order for there to be sacrifices. And there's got to be a temple in order for the prince who is to come to desecrate it, which it says he's going to do here in verse 27. Now we are part way there. We have the nation of Israel since 1948. We have lots of controversy, lots of conflict, lots of hatred, lots of threatenings, love war and destruction. So the stage is set for a treaty. But you know, of course, there's no motivation for a treaty if there's no threat. We have lots of threats. So that stage is set. There's no temple, but there's plans for one. One huge obstacle is that there will be, there is a Muslim holy site on the Temple Mount, on the place where Solomon's Temple was, which is where they would want to rebuild. There's a Muslim holy site there. We suspect that the treaty is going to somehow resolve that issue. 
And the temple will be built and the sacrifices will resume. And the Israeli government has been making plans for this for decades. So we say, who in the world is the prince of these people? The prince who is to come. Well, he can be no other than the little horn we studied in chapter 7. The small horn in chapter 8. He appears again in chapter 11, which we'll see in a few weeks. He is the political leader who is going to rise out of the ten kingdoms of the last world empire. The ten toes of the statue in Daniel 2, we looked at way back then. The ten horns of the last beast in chapter 7. The one whom we call, in our day, the Antichrist. He speaks great things. He subdues other rulers, chapter 7 said. He has overwhelming power to conquer. His ancestral roots are going to be in the geographic area of the Roman Empire. He's going to make a peace treaty with Israel, allowing them to rebuild the temple and reinstitute Old Testament sacrifices. Remember, they don't accept Jesus as the Messiah, yet, so they're still aiming to go back to the Old Testament law of Moses. And in the middle of that seven years, with three and a half years left on God's prophetic clock, he breaks the treaty... He desecrates the temple. He wreaks havoc with the Jews for three and a half years until he is destroyed at the end of that seven years. You say, you get all that in that passage? No, but you know what? By the grace of God, we have the New Testament. (laughs) And the New Testament expands on all sorts of things. Let me show you three passages that kind of expand on, 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 on all of this. And then when you read those, then you come back and you look at verse 27. And you say, oh, that's what Daniel was talking about. Thankfully, God the Holy Spirit revealed things through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. And we can see exactly what verse 27 is talking about. So look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We could preach... Ten messages from this one chapter, and probably not exhaust it all. We're just going to look at a couple of verses, again, for the sake of time. You want to read the whole chapter, feel free to do so. The Lord Jesus Christ is explaining to his disciples in this chapter when the signs of the end of the age were going to be what they should be looking for when we're getting close to the time of his return. And Jesus says this, look at verse, uh, uh, let's start to read in verse 15, just for the sake of time. You can read the first, first few verses and you can catch right up with that. Matthew twenty four fifteen. Therefore, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. I pause and say, whoa, hey, look at that. Jesus says, Jesus is referring to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And also in Daniel chapter 11. And also in Daniel chapter 7. The abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when you see that happen, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, when you see the abomination standing in the holy place, so then we see that the abomination of desolation is an event and a person, Because he is standing in the holy place. He says, whoever reads, let him understand. Then he said, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who was on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who was in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight 
may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. That's why we call it the great tribulation. There will be horrifying things. And, he, and, and Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which you look back at Daniel, if you've been with us for a bunch of these, uh, the, the prefiguring of that, the, the Old Testament picture of that, is when Antiochus Epiphanes, that, that, uh, that, that, that ruler, came into the temple and slaughtered a pig on the altar and threw its blood and its entrails all over the place and shoved some of that pork down the throats of some of the priests, killed, killed a bunch of them, and actually desecrated the, the, the temple. He called it the abomination of desolation but Jesus lived 175 years after that and he says when you see this spoken of by the prophet Daniel then you better run for the hills because there is coming great tribulation that this world has never ever ever seen so Jesus is saying that that thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did 175 years ago, that was a picture of something to come, but this is a future event. And he says, all of the forces of hell are going to be unleashed on this world. It'll be worse than anything that has ever happened before. That's what Daniel 9.27 is talking about. That prince who is to come right in the middle of the seven years, is going to break his treaty with Israel, he's going to stop the sacrifices, and we're going to see a verse in just a moment that says he is going to put himself in the temple and claim to be God. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has been teaching the people in Thessalonica about the second coming of Christ. <clears throat> Someone, <coughs> excuse me, had, had written them a letter and said, you guys missed it, the second coming happened. And Paul says, oh no, you, did, you didn't miss it. And because he says in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul says that's what the man of sin is going to do. He is going to exalt himself above God. He's going to claim to be that, that he is God and you better worship me. He's going to go into the temple and he's going to desecrate it and he's going to say, I am the Messiah, worship me or else. He goes on in verse 9, and we won't take, again, for the sake of time reading the whole passage, we could preach two or three messages on these 12 verses here in 2 Thessalonians 2. But look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So he said, this, this man of sin, we call him the Antichrist, this man of sin is, is going to come in with all the working of Satan. He's going to have power and signs and lying wonders and unrighteous deception. And all the unbelievers in the world are just going to say, Wow, this guy is amazing. We are, yeah, he wants us to worship him. Yeah, look at all the problems he's fixed. 
He said they will be totally, they will be totally deceived by what the Antichrist does. And then one final verse or passage, Romans 13. Some of you Whitetail Baptist Church veterans will remember we have looked at this passage on more than one occasion. Romans 13. But I want to show you a couple of things again. We won't read the whole passage. Don't have time to read the whole passage. But there, there are several things I just want you to see in this passage. And if you have been looking at any of your notes or thinking back to what we studied in Daniel 7, and yeah, just, I mean, it, 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 it's amazing what will jump off the page here to you. <clears throat> Revelation 13. I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. You say, wait a minute, hey, there's ten horns and ten crowns. Yeah, I remember that from Daniel 7. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Oh, hey, there's, there's the leopard, the bear, and the lion. They were there in Daniel 7. The dragon gave him his power, and we know from chapter 12 that the dragon is Satan himself. He gives him his power, his throne, and great authority. Verse 4, they says they worship the, the dragon and who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like him who is able to make war with him? Verse 5, he was given a mouth speaking great things. Remember, we saw that in Daniel several times. This little horn rises up and, oh, he's going to speak great things, powerful, pompous. He was, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to, to continue for 42 months. Oh, there we are, three and a half years again. We saw it in Daniel 7. We, we see it now again in Daniel 9. And here we are in Revelation 13. He has the greatest of his power the last three and a half years of that seven-year treaty. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Remember we saw in Daniel 7 that the Antichrist is going to wear out the saints, Daniel said. But then look at this phrase. Awe and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you are writing things down, you can write this down. Verse 7 is global government. Authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is global government. He is ruling the whole planet. Every country, every ethnic group, every language spoken. He says every tribe, tongue, and nation, he's got authority over all of them. Global government. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That is global religion. You must worship the Antichrist. He said, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, except for those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. They won't. Many of them will die. So you've got global government. You've got coming global religion. And then look at verse 16 and 17. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. That is a global economy. You cannot conduct business without 
the mark of the Antichrist. We don't know what the mark is. A lot of people like to speculate. We don't know what the mark is or exactly what it's going to be. We have some very fascinating theories because of our modern technology. But what is going to happen when the Antichrist actually takes complete control of this world? He's going to have global government, global religion, and a global economy all under the direct authority of the Antichrist. You do it or you die. Daniel 9.27 says that the consummation, the end of all these things, is determined or marked out and is going to be poured out on the one who makes desolate. In other words, the Antichrist is going to be judged. Jesus identifies this time period as the Great Tribulation. The Apostle John identifies it as a seven-year period with the last half, three and a half years, being the most horrible. It is a time of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. You say, are we going to be here? Well, you know what? The church had zero connection with the first 69 sevens. I see no reason that the church is going to have any connection with the 70th seven either. That's why I've preached to you for the last 37 years, the pre-tribulation rapture. I don't believe that this, that the 70th seven in Daniel 70, the Daniel 70 or 490 year period, I don't think that the 70th seven, the tribulation, has anything to do with the church or the church age. I believe it has to do with Israel and the, the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, just like the first 69 did. But I just want to tell you this, folks, things, things are lining up. Israel is a nation. She is militarily powerful. She is a dominant fighting force. She is surrounded by enemies. She is planning for the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem one day. Europe is becoming more dominant. North America and the United States is becoming weaker. All of the infrastructure for a global government is already in place. All of the technology for a global economy is already in place. The global religion will be enforced by the Antichrist, but the spiritual climate for it is already in place. You say, what do you mean by that? You, you know this, this concept, we call it ecumenicalism or ecumenism. We're all the same, we're all going to the same place, there's many roads to heaven, doesn't matter what you believe, unless you say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Then you are in big trouble. But as long as you say that all religions are equal and everything's all the same and everybody's going to all going to the same place and all just got many ways to get to God, as long as you say, as you say that, all is well. But if you talk about the exclusive nature of the gospel, only one way to get to heaven, then you are in big trouble. See, we've already got the spiritual climate for a global religion. It's there. And I guarantee you the infrastructure for global government and the technology for a global economy, it is all ready here. Let me close with one verse and we'll end there. Luke chapter 21. You say, when, when's it going to happen, Larry? I don't know. Neither does anybody else, but I guarantee you, things are lining up. I've told you dozens of times, we are not date setters, but we also don't have our heads in the sand ignoring everything that's happening. Jesus here in Luke chapter 21, uh, Luke chapter 21 is kind of the parallel passage of Matthew 24 that we looked at. 
a little bit shorter as far as these kinds of things, but, but, but I just want to show you one, one verse, verse, verse 28, Luke 21, 28. You can read the whole section sometime on your own if you wish to do so. Jesus says, now when these things begin to happen, and you can look and see all the things he's talking about, all the stuff we've been talking about this morning. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Things are lining up. When will it all come to pass? I cannot say. No one can. God may give us more time. Things can go awfully fast. Who would have thought in February of 2020 what was going to happen in March of 2020? It continues to happen today. Things can happen really fast. Things can change really fast. What will happen with all the pushback worldwide against this global authoritarianism? I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to play out. But I know that the roots and the seeds and the preparation for global government, global economy, and global religion, they're already here. They are in full bloom. They are rolling along. Jesus says, when you see this stuff start happening, better start watching the sky. Lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. And my question to you is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Lord Jesus, help us. We know you as our Savior. Lord, help us to be what we should be to be determined to follow you, to be determined to live a holy life, to be determined to keep a testimony for the Lord Jesus, to be determined to pray, to witness. We don't know how much more time we have. And you know, I'm not just trying to scare people or try and motivate people through fear. Just trying to be realistic. Trying to be honorable with the Word of God. And you said, Lord, when we see these things coming to pass, lift up our heads and look, our redemption is drawing near. That's all we're trying to do. And Lord, if there's anyone here or certainly our friends and loved ones who that they are not sure that they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. They've never pledged their allegiance to the Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, that they will make certain that they have taken care of that today. We don't know how much more time we have, Lord. We certainly see global government is moving. It is on the march. Global economy, it is, it is here. The way to, for the governments of the world to totally control everything, every single thing about us, it is here. So when the Antichrist rises and begins to take control, all the infrastructure, all the technology, it'll all be there for him. It's ready. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on the sky, keep our eyes on what's going on around us, and may we, Lord, be watching and waiting and working and serving as we wait for you to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.